It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen got no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. Yes, it is. <laughs> and Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a second of serenity in a seditious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900, closing in on 1,000, wow, uh, post videos and podcasts, 1,000. Medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm, I'm not going to give you any trouble about not being at a thousand yet. I'm working hard. <laughs> I think every week nine, I'm like, hey, you're not at a thousand. I'm at 977. Wow. Like I, I am impressed, darling. It Seriously. is a lot of stuff. And thanks to you. A lot of you. content. Yeah, a lot of it's from you too. So. And you know, the funny thing is, every day we get listeners like you guys out there that write to us with topics that we haven't even covered. Yep. It's incredible. And we do cover them sometimes. It is pretty amazing. We do a- answer questions also. Absolutely. Uh, on, we listen to you guys. Right, exactly. We, we really do. Very happy to listen. So if you've been out there, and the thing is, a lot of times uh, people will write to us and ask us to speak about something, and we actually have covered that topic just many years ago. Right. That's the problem when you've been writing for, oh my gosh, how many years now? Seven? Oh, seven or eight years, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, a long time, man. <laughs> so things get lost yep. in the website. It's true. There's just a whole... <laughs> it's like I, I don't, buried it deep could, right. inside of doomandbloom.net. Right. It could be a dozen <laughs> websites worth of stuff in there. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. Hey. I'm Amy Olsen. Who are you? <laughs> Who's this woman talking? That voice. That voice. Oh, my goodness. I think I need some water. Or, or as the bird says... Water, <laughs> water. Yeah, we, we have a parrot. Whatever Smart it wants one. to be wet with the uh, wet by a little spray thing that we have. It says water. Or if we spray it and I say, "What's this?" the bird will say, "Water." It's a very, very <laughs> smart bird, and he also makes a sound. It's like the sound of water dripping. <laughs> Is from that the... what water sounds yeah. like? Okay. Oh, and and the bird. <laughs> Um, when I do drink wine, which I've stopped drinking because I, I know I have an allergy to it, but when I used to drink wine, if I had to open the bottle, uh-huh. I don't know if you knew this, but if I got the bottle out and put it on the counter, uh-huh. the bird would go, pop. Let's see how I can make it. 
Oh, wow. He would make the exact the sound, sound of, the cork popping. of the cork coming out. Wow. And I, I'd look at him and I'd say, Bird, you're just too smart. <laughs> well, that is all very entertaining. But, but first, also, why don't you say who the heck I you did, are? I did. I did. I said you? I'm Amy who? Dalton. Oh, but I, I don't think I said I'm also known as Nurse Amy. That's right. But and I am also known. And I'm a, an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And a certified nurse midwife. And the dynamic duo, you and me, baby. We are indeed the courageous couple. We're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors? Yes. Have you been injured in an accident? Well. <laughs> With a malicious marmot? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but what if the worst happens and you end up as the highest medical resource left to your loved ones? Boy, oh boy, what do you do? When the ambulance is heading in the other direction. Well, you know what? You show the world that you're smarter than a bag of pistachios. That's what, by learning what to do for injuries and illnesses in good times or bad. And while you're at it, why not get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge? And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, <laughs> never equaled, I'll say, Aww. medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues in tough times. They're designed by, believe it or not, a real doctor. How about that? And advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our stuff for contents, quality, cost with anyone else's stuff. Or just ask anyone who's ever bought one of our kits, and you'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. I just want to give a shout-out to City Prepper. Oh, okay. A YouTube channel, which has got some awesome information. He was kind enough to do a review on our gunshot kit. Oh, well, that's awesome. Yeah, thank so you, City thank Prepper. you, City Prepper. I we really appreciate it. it. Absolutely. And I think the web, the um, channel might be called City Prepping. City Prepping, But he's yes. called City Prepper. Right. <laughs> City Prepping so, by City Prepper. Yes, I think okay, that's that how it sense, goes. That makes sense, right? That makes a lot of sense. Yes, that's <laughs> like us with our different names. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to give him a shout-out and say thank you very much. I super, super appreciate um, any help <laughs> out there. And it was a good review. He did a good job. Well, I we appreciate very it. very proud. Hey. Yes. What's up, Buttercup? I got a burn. You do? <laughs> well, Are we going to talk about burns today? No, no we're going to talk gonna... about how we learn so much from the people in our audience. And so we ask them to connect with us. And you know what? It's easy. And you're going to tell them how. Absolutely. Well, like I was discussing a little earlier, please feel free to write to us. We do listen. I promise. And how do they do that? They can email us at drbonespodcast. And dr is for doctor. Bones, like bones in your body, podcast, which is what you're listening to, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at AOL.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Prepper Show, our YouTube channel, which is Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, 
And also, I think you can just look up Doom and Bloom. It might show up that way, too. Um, so check that out. We have over 155 videos, and I just put one up what, uh, just a few days ago. Uh -huh. Yes, you did. What was that one on? That one was on uh, tooth, tooth abscesses. You have another one that's still in the. I uh, yes still, yes yeah on that was disease on my causing organisms. That got was a lot on of, my list. A lot of stuff in the works. I know. I wasn't sure which one I put up. So that's the one that's yeah. Up and... So we have YouTube. We've got Twitter. We have Facebook. We uh -huh. have an awesome group of folks who uh, all chat together and we yeah. chat with 5, them. 5,000 strong, yeah. Yeah, and that one's called Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones. Again, just the DR. DR Bones and Nurse Amy. A couple of other Facebook pages. We have Doom and Bloom yep. is our our, our official uh, right educational page, right? store, mm -hmm. uh, store website. Uh, excuse me, Facebook. And the other one was our personal page. It's DR Bones and Nurse Amy show. And we also have, we have LinkedIn. And we're going to start getting active on Instagram. Yes. Which we forgot be, about. We, we put, <laughs> and that, it's amazing. There's so much social media you could easily forget. I have forget. so many pictures in my phone that I oh, can yeah. share. I mean, it's difficult to think about, okay, what do you do with medical? But I have injuries on there. We we so have, what do they do? They follow us on Instagram, or they yeah like us on Instagram? No, you have followers. You have followers, and then and then you follow people, and everyone shares their images. There's not a lot of text to it. You just put like a little blurb something, huh? little blurb, kind of right. like Pinterest. Well, pretty cool. Yeah. So on that one is, if you want to see the pictures, I'm gonna start putting up Doom and Bloom Medical. All one word. Doom, Doom and Bloom, Bloom Medical. Medical. That's yes. right. So, I mean, you'll find us basically if you look up Doom and Bloom and if you look up uh, DR Bones. Right, Dr. We Bones. We never mention our Pinterest. Yeah, we have Pinterest, hundreds of we Pinterest. We start mentioning that. Yeah, so we have Pinterest. Uh, we do have a lot. We've, we've been pretty good info, about that. Survival medicine, all sorts of pins that you'll find there. Absolutely. Also, I want to just let people know that we have another podcast called American Survival Radio, and it is broadcast not only with Genesis Communications Network, but also with a number of radio stations across the country. We appreciate it. It's more of a current event show, so if you're interested in only our medical stuff, then absolutely stick with us here on Survival Medicine Hour. Otherwise, you can also check out American Survival Radio. Well, last week we talked a little bit about different types of shock. We discussed hypovolemic shock right. from severe dehydration, hemorrhagic shock from severe bleeding, cardiogenic shock from major heart events like trauma to the heart or heart attacks. But there are other types of shock, of course. There's anaphylactic shock. I'm sure you've heard of that, where your immune system goes haywire, mounts an overreaction to an allergy-causing substance. That's like a bee sting, for example. That would be... Uh, one possibility. There's hypoglycemic shock where your sugars drop so low that they disrupt your entire system. Then there's hyperglycemic shock where diabetics with very poor control wind up having glucose levels of gosh 350, 400 and that causes a life-threatening collapse of your entire system. It has to be rapidly dealt with or you may die. And then there's septic shock as well caused by an overwhelming bacterial or viral load, as you'll see in things like toxic shock syndrome uh, or perhaps Ebola. And there's even neurogenic shock where major systems collapse due 
to some major trauma to the spinal cord or brain. So there's a lot of different types of shock, and we've been talking about all these types of shock over the past few shows. But what do you do if you recognize someone's in shock? Well, before you administer any kind of treatment, it's important to know what you're dealing with. And so remember these signs and symptoms of shock. They include uh, cool, clammy skin that may appear, appear sort of pale or grayish, uh, profuse sweating, moist skin, uh, bluish lips and fingernails due to lack of oxygen, a rapid and weak pulse, uh, rapid and shallow breathing, uh, enlarged, interestingly, I've enlarged or contracted pupil, either big or small pupils. And pupils in some types of shock can enlarge, and in some others, they constrict. There's low blood pressure, there's little or no urine output as things are shutting down. Uh, if the person's conscious, they usually will have an altered mental status, will be disoriented, confused, agitated, faint, uh, well, just about anything you can imagine. And the person may also complain of chest pain, certainly in uh, cardiogenic shock. Uh, they may be nauseous, may be vomited, and severe dehydration. You wind up vomiting, which makes it even worse, of course. And in the end, most types of shock, you wind up losing consciousness. As a matter of fact, before you die, you're going to go through some type of shock. So everybody goes through some type of shock before they exit this world. Now, in, their sur in survival, there's some of these types of shock that you're not going to be able to do much about. For example, cardiogenic shock from the death of heart muscle from a major heart attack. Well, that's not likely to be reversed just by realizing that you see somebody having a, and that they are having a heart attack. So what do you do when you come upon a person in shock? But what You have to do what you can where you are with what you have. And the initial response should be, well, in normal times, the initial response should be to call 911 and, and get the emergency responders over there as quickly as possible. Of course, self-care at home, if there's a functioning modern medical response system available, well, self-care at home, probably not appropriate. But in the meantime, what you want to do is you want to lay that person down in a, a safe place, place where they can't hurt themselves and try to keep them warm and comfortable. You cover them up with a mylar blanket, for example, or a regular blanket. If they're bleeding, of course, you have to stop the bleeding. You have to apply pressure, do whatever's necessary to stop the hemorrhage. Uh, you place that person in the shock position that is with uh, their legs 12 inches above the level of their heart, person on their back. Don't elevate the head. And by the way, you should only do that if the person is conscious has no injury to the head, leg, neck, or spine. So these are the reasons that you don't always put them in that one position. They have to not have an injury to the head, leg, neck, or spine. And spine. The only circumstance in which that might be suspended is if you're under fire in some kind of hostile, hostile uh, event. But otherwise, you have to pay attention to that. Now, if raising the legs causes pain or, or possible harm, well, don't elevate the legs then and leave that person lying in a flat position. The person, person is vomiting, bleeding from the mouth, unconscious. You might want to put them in what's called the recovery position. And that's on their side uh, with one leg, one leg bent at the knee and uh, one arm out. And so uh, they're in a situation where at the very least, vomit doesn't go back, back down their throat, or worse, their windpipe. So that's important. Of course, 
patients that aren't awake, you have to make sure that they're breathing and that they have a heartbeat. If they don't, well, you've got to start CPR, start chest compressions following American Heart Association guidelines. That's 30 compressions at a speed of 100 a minute. If you're trained in CPR, then you can give two rescue breaths and then go back to another 30 compressions. If not, just keep compressing. And that people that are untrained seem to be more effective if they're just giving compressions than anything else. Now, if there is an automated defibrillator, well, that's great. And get, get that if there is indeed an ambulance that's on the way. Now, you also have to check what we call the ABCs. The ABCs are airway, breathing, circulation. Um, the airway is the assessment as whether a person is awake enough to try to take their own breaths or whether there might be something that could be blocking the nose or the mouth. Somebody had something go down the wrong pipe and you know, might have an airway obstruction. You know, that good, good time to use a Heimlich maneuver. Uh, breathing is B. Uh, that's the assessment of the adequacy of breathing, whether it may need to be assisted with mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation or more aggressive interventions. Some people have a bag mask, which they can push air into the person. Some people may have an endotracheal tube uh, and, and a ventilator. But, of course, that's only in absolutely normal times. The truth of the matter is you may keep somebody alive bagging them, but you'll only do it for a period of time until your arm gives out if there's not a place for them to go where there is a mechanical respirator for them that can breathe for them. If, they, if not, then you're breathing for someone until you get tired, then the next guy has to do it until he gets tired, and what are you going to do? You're just going to take shifts and hope that that person wakes up. In most cases, in most cases that require resuscitation from CPR, they require advanced intensive care afterwards. There are very few situations where they won't, and the only one that I can think of right offhand, there are, there are more, but the only one I can think of right offhand is an airway obstruction. In other words, if I swallow a, a grape and goes down my windpipe and it blocks my windpipe, if you give me the Heimlich maneuver, I expel the grape and I will be okay. But if I have a heart attack, well, that could be something very very different and because some heart muscle is dying or is dead and i'm not being able to pump the heart effect as effectively as i could before a c it stands for circulation and you have to assess, assess the adequacy of the blood pressure whether uh, iv lines are needed to give fluids things like that to support the blood pressure remember in shock the blood pressure drops which of course is going to make it nearly impossible to put a line in Exactly, and so, the, and and you may not have the ability, to the materials to put lines in anyhow. Exactly. So you see it's that a, you got it's a, a rock in a hard place yeah, at that point. Right. So you see that you, there are some major issues there, some big big problems related to uh, the ABCs in situations where you're in a long-term off-grid setting. Matter of fact, in reality, uh, you, it might be CAB because the most likely reason. Is not people keeling over, keeling over from heart attacks. The most likely reason people will die is probably from some bleeding event due to some hostile encounter. Right. Well, anyhow, so you have to, of course, if, if speaking of hostile encounters, if there is bleeding that's obvious, you have to control it with direct pressure. If you have a medical kit, use band, make sure you have bandages, turn, two tourniquets, uh, hemostatic gauze like C-locks, quick clot. Those are really important, useful things to have in your medical kit and you should always be if you're out and about especially in unknown territory 
you should have a medical kit with you, whether you're the medic or whether you're just a member of the party. So that's important. Uh, of course, paramedics will check for hypoglycemic or hyperglycemic shock. They do the finger stick. You're not going to be able to do that. You might actually have a glucometer if it can be powered with, let's say, rechargeable batteries. Unfortunately, the materials you need to collect the sample are not only expensive, but some machines actually will not run the test if the test strips are beyond the expiration date. How frustrating is that? Oh Don't gosh. you remember we got out uh, my... Uh, glucometer it had been a while since i had checked my sugar so i tried to check it and it just wouldn't let you it wouldn't it wouldn't because start it knew the date of it's called a drum yeah it has the the little, little test strips test strips in it um it's almost like an an old film cartridge yeah it looks it's like round that. like that uh -huh. like old, old 35 millimeter film uh but anyway it knew the expiration date had already passed, so it wouldn't even dispense one of them. Although, I'm absolutely sure that they would have been fine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, it wasn't that far after expiration date. I mean, I know test strips do go bad. Don't get me wrong. Urine test strips go bad. There's chemicals on those that react with your urine if you're doing a urine dipstick. Um, so test strips do go bad eventually, but those weren't. <laughs> right. That, that's just frustrating that the machine did not allow you to check your blood sugar. Right. And that is obviously a big pharma thing. Oh, they want, yeah. Uh, these companies that make these machines and make these test strips want you to keep buying a frequent supply of them. And not only that, but what happens is they put out a machine. You have a specific drum or test strip drum that you have to buy for that machine. They're not interchangeable at all. In fact, when they put a new version out, a lot of times they'll change up the drum, the drum shape. Yeah. So it your old ones won't even fit in your new machine. So oh, now yeah. you have to buy new ones. Yeah, as these things are getting smaller and smaller, obviously, they're designing new drums for them that would that the function for the new ones, you can't use the old ones, so it's a huge waste of so money. So if you're trying to stock up on glucose test strips and you've got one of these little battery-powered machines, you can buy all the drums you want. But once, at least most of the machines that I've seen, once the machine recognizes the expiration date has occurred, it's not even going to let you use them. Yeah. It's so you could have hundreds and hundreds of these, which would cost you a fortune, by the way, because they are not cheap. It is amazing. Even if they're covered by insurance, you know, you have to buy some on your own. You're going to have to pay cash for those because they only will let you have a certain supply. But they're, they're just not going to be used. You're not going to be able to use them unless somebody out there knows a way to uh, override that kind of right. expiration. Well, I don't. <laughs> I don't either. So <laughs> what a thing. Now, with uh, oh, shock... They of, always get us somehow, oh, they, don't they? They do. They do, indeed. <laughs> now, the issue with shock, of course, oftentimes is lack of oxygen being delivered to the tissues, right? And so one thing that might be useful is you might want to have an oxygen canister. It won't last a long time, obviously, in a long-term survival situations, but it might be good to give people some oxygen once or twice or maybe three times uh, and help support them if they have some kind of event, maybe an asthmatic attack or uh, anaphylactic shock or something mm -hmm. like that, that might might actually be resolvable. So that might not be a bad idea. That's, you know, you're facing something so ominous 
so terrible that you know you're you're going to do all of these things that you can for the patient and you've went through these things that you know hopefully you have access to but sometimes they're it's just not around and you're looking at the patient and you're saying my gosh I don't have IVs I, I don't have a hospital I don't have cardiac monitoring and the patient just will pass it's it's very very sad to even think about I mean it happens every day in countries that don't have for people who don't have access quickly to medical facilities we are yep. so lucky in this country people can complain and and be arch about our system yes and protest there are so many people that we've met personally and, and that were patients of ours that without medical facilities you know they would not be here today you're absolutely right or they would be seriously maimed right we really have to be thankful for what we have i mean when if we something ever happens we get thrown back to the 19th century with regards to our medical we're gonna look, situation look we, back and we were going and wish yeah. we had this oh and, and, and it's not perfect folks believe me there it's just not perfect and it probably never will be because with the human factor nothing's ever that's perfect. true human error is actually one of the major causes of Problems and uh, and even deaths. Mistakes. Yeah, and even People deaths. People forget things. In hospitals today. So you have to always watch things. I remember when uh, my son was first diagnosed with uh, diabetes, I remember that the first times that we were giving him insulin. It was what, around, or that was, mid-80s? Was, that was, yeah. Mid-80s? Yeah. And, and so I knew a little bit since I took care of diabetics with uh that were pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was those were that was in my obstetrician days. I knew what would be about appropriate starter doses and you know monitoring sugars and things like that. Of course. And a nurse came in with an injection of what looked like an awful lot of insulin. So I oh, asked what no. the dose of insulin was that, that she was, was about to give, and it was exactly ten times the amount <gasps> that he was supposed to get. And so I, I refused to allow oh her to give gosh. it, made a huge stink, was almost thrown out of the hospital until they realized that that was not the appropriate dose. Oh, my god! So that was a very long time ago, but you have to be an advocate for, for you your watch. people that are sick. I just Absolutely. had some stitches removed, what, two days ago? Yes, you and did. And the woman picked up um, something from the floor. Or she dropped a pen. She had gloves on. She'd been taking some stitches out. She picks up a pen, and then she, she puts the pen. Gloves. No, she puts the pen on the counter, and she picks up, starts to pick up the instruments to continue removing stitches. And I said, "I'm sorry. I don't mean to sound like a. Uh, did I say biatch? Yes, you are. <laughs> I I said, you said but, that. <laughs> but, but I need you to change your gloves. And she just looked at me with this blank look, like I have no idea what you're talking about. I said, "You picked something off the floor." You need to change your gloves before you start removing my stitches. I mean, when you have stitches, folks, when they remove them, your wound is not always completely healed. You know, there's some open areas sometimes. And I know I have some open areas where she removed the stitches, and I'm like, okay, great. Just what I want is a nice big whopping wound infection. Because somebody was too lazy to change their gloves. So that is one thing you've got to pay attention 
no matter how long someone's been in practice, no matter how many times they claim to have either washed their hands or changed their gloves, unless you see it happen in front of you, it, assume it, it did not happen. happen. This right. is the one time when the assumption is absolutely correct. You right. assume it didn't happen. We're blowing the whistle the, on our, <laughs> our own professions here, I'm but telling you, that's what you got to do. They may have just, I don't know, scratched their eye or maybe they had a, something in their their mouth. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I have no idea. Just don't trust it. And if they don't wash their hands and put gloves, fresh gloves, and if they touch other things with their gloves on and then they come back to you, politely. Politely, I of think course. I, was, I was pretty polite. You were very polite. I wasn't nasty. You were very polite. I'm sorry to have to ask you this, <laughs> but <laughs> you're going to have to change your gloves. That's right. And they don't always realize what they've done. That's another thing. I think um, nurses and doctors and other professionals, even people at food counters, I think we've oh, talked yeah. about this before, they don't realize what they're touching is dirty. There's a, a real... It's something you've got to put your mind into when you have gloves on. It, what you're touching, is it clean? Is it dirty? Is it sterile? And depending on what you've touched, you can't go backwards. If you touch sterile to sterile to sterile, that's fine. You could stay within that. But if you go from sterile to clean, if you go and touch something that's sterile after that, now that's not sterile anymore. It might still be clean, but it's not sterile. And if you go from something that's dirty, then you definitely can't touch anything that's clean or sterile because you've just screwed the whole then thing. Then you've made it dirty, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, let's see, what else? Of course, uh, in normal times, you're going to be able to transfuse people with a great deal of blood loss if that's the cause of the shock. Uh, but if bleeding is not the case, let's say you're not obviously not going to be able to do much in the line of transfusions. Many times you won't know the blood type of the person. And, and there are things called subtypes, which could make you actually very sick, even if you are transfusing the same blood type, general blood type. It may not kill the person, but it could get make them have a high fever. We've seen that, I'm sure, quite a few times. I remember that yes. many times yes. in uh, during my practice to see People have that happen during uh, transfusion, right? Yep. Sure, transfusion reactions. Um, if it's a severe dehydration causing the shock, you can of course give normal saline uh, to bolster the volume of fluids. The problem is that normal saline or other IV fluids are usually given in quantity, and, and they, unfortunately, they come in these 200 the 250 cc bags are pretty much the only IV bags that you can get. They're the ones that come with training sets. Oh, so you've, you've done your research. Right, and it's hard to get the liter bags. The bigger ones, the 1,000 cc. Right, and you need to give a couple of liters for a lot, most of these problems at least, and you have to realize that sometimes it's going to be difficult to get these in quantity. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to buy a liter of IV saline, for example, mm -hmm. in a case of 12 or 14 or, or, eight or 16, whatever it comes in, right. it, you might find it difficult to find online. Certainly difficult to find online without a prescription. That's the thing. Well, there are a few places that you might find, but usually they wind up getting shut down by the local medical board. Then, then another one may pop up. So, I mean, I'm looking look around. Right now while you're look talking. around. You might be able to find it. Uh, but, and if you Let's can, see. go ahead and get them. But you have to remember that IV fluids are also a weight 
uh, a load on your pack. Oh, yeah. Four liters of Ivy fluid, four liter bags, four one liter bags of Ivy fluid equals about 12 pounds. So you're talking about an awful lot of IV fluids. Right. So do you want IV fluids or do you want food? Right. And medical supplies. Exactly. And maybe some ammo. So that's an issue. And a shelter. Yeah. Big big issue. Big issue. And of course they have uh, the drugs they use to maintain blood pressure uh, for people in shock. Well, they're also prescription drugs, and they work. They work by stimulating the heart to beat stronger and squeezing blood vessels to increase the flow inside them, but. They are not something that's going to be available to the average person. Notice how a lot of the stuff I want you to have in your medical kit is just pl- for to deal with shock is just not available off the grid. Sure enough, a lot of materials will be useful in normal times. Might not be even very helpful, at least after a while, if a true disaster occurs. Uh, how about an automated defibrillator? I mean, I keel over from a heart attack. My heart's not beating. You use your automated defibrillator, which still has batteries, to revive me, and it works. Well... The heart muscle that was involved in the heart attack is dead, still dead, and still or still dying. There's no replacement nor even equipment that's going to support my heart while I'm recovering. Where does that put you? That puts you between a rock and a hard place. And where does yep. that put me? Probably six feet under. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Can we, like, not talk about that, please? All right. Well, there are a lot of hard realities involved in being the medic in times of trouble. That's true. But I don't want to hear about it about my husband. Well, all right. Well, part of it revolves around who is really salvageable and who isn't. Who's going to benefit the most from your expending your medical supplies? And will using up your kit for someone unlikely to survive be fair to those that might be saved the next time. Mm. Aha, a lot of headaches in making those decisions, and believe me, a lot of heartaches as well. Well, let's get off that subject. Let's talk Wait, a little bit. Let me, let me just, oh, you got something to say? Well, yeah. It says this. they're actually calling the IV solutions on Boundary uh-huh. that you need... A con- it's a controlled substance. Okay, <laughs> controlled. so see, it's even, so salt even worse water than just prescription. So yeah. salt water is a controlled substance, there, buddy. See, <laughs> see what I'm saying? Yeah. You still somewhere, somewhere on the internet, you may find it. Who knows? So but, not only do you need a copy of your DEA registration, oh boy, but you need a copy of the state controlled substance license, where required on, in certain states. Oh, my goodness. So Well, there you go. Tough, <sighs> tough to get a hold of bags. They're not terribly expensive. You can get you can get a case of 16 for 64.99. Right, if you and could And a liter only, for 5 bucks, If you could only get them. If you could only, yeah. All right. Well, how about that? Well, good to know. Well, I want to talk a little bit about um, a organization that I belong to. It's called the Wilderness Medical Society, and they put out an excellent journal called the Wilderness uh, Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. It's the official publication of the Wilderness Medical Society, and uh, they had a special edition in which they talk about tactical combat cas- casualty care, or TC3, uh, transitioning battlefield lessons to uh, that w- have been learned to other austere environments. And it's very interesting. A lot of the stuff we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks that that's in this journal the amazing thing though is that a lot of what i'm talking about the stuff that i talk about when i talk about long-term survival medicine is right right in there 
And not, there's not a lot of surprises that we'll see there. But I do want to talk a little bit. It does what it does remind me of, however, is of th- it reminds me of things that I don't talk a lot about or don't write a lot about on the website and on the podcast. And what I want to do is talk about one of those things now, and that is wound debridement. Uh, this is a little bit about long-term care of open wounds. You know, injuries in remote settings like a wilderness trail or a survival homestead, they pose challenges to the medic that's not experienced in taking care of wounds long, long-term. I mean, that even includes trained people like paramedics who get you to the hospital and are high, high levels of medical resources, but if they had to take care of that wound from beginning to end, they may not be in their element. Ordinarily, a system exists to evacuate victims of major injuries to modern medical facilities, and in situations where that option doesn't exist, for the foreseeable future at least, the average person may have to be medically responsible from the point of injury to full recovery. That's what I've been saying for years now, and I hope that it's sinking, sinking in to some people. Uh, This is a pretty sobering thought for most people. I mean, the tools that are needed to provide regular wound care, the medications to prevent and treat infection may not be at hand, you know, if you don't uh, accumulate, for example, antibiotics now, you may have less tools in the medical woodshed to deal with long-term wound care. So for that reason, I've spent all these years writing articles on the importance on antibiotics. Now, I've written extensively on that subject, but I've written less on wound debridement. Originating from the French word desbrider, or debrider, which means to unbridle, unbridle, debridement is the act of removing dead or foreign material that's in and around a wound. Debridement was probably first discovered to be a useful medical tool, tool in wartime where grossly contaminated wounds were, well, were the usual thing that you wound up seeing. I mean, these horrific wounds that occurred in armed conflicts uh, seem to do better if you remove damaged and dead tissue from the area. And this tissue it might be in on the edges of the wound only. It might be throughout the injury. It could be anywhere. The, the wound ha- has, with dead tissue in it usually appears discolored, the dead tissue it may look blackish, may have a foul odor. It also could appear white, for example. So there are a lot of different looks that it could have. But by removing dead tissue, by definition, it's dead. It will not heal. You eventually can do reach a level where there is some live tissue. And after debridement, the remaining live tissue can recover in a cleaner environment and maybe produce new cells, right, and might or sometimes it might, in certain can, uh, circumstances, become a candidate for a wound closure. So why should you debride a wound? Those seem like pretty good reasons. That, but despite the benefits of debridement, there are some survival medics that might understandably be a little reluctant to intervene and start cutting parts of people out. And, well, <laughs> that's important for them to understand that there are detrimental effects of allowing non-viable tissue to remain in an open wound. And the first is lack of exposure. An open wound is best evaluated when you get rid of all the dead tissue. Actually, you can see what the live tissue is, how much viable material is known. I mean, that could make the difference between uh, just deciding to 
monitor a wound or, or gosh, amputate a limb. And next is uh, the suppression of the healing process. Now, tissue that's no longer viable serves as a great place for bacteria to grow, especially the really nasty ones that can cause things like gangrene. These or the flesh-eating bacteria. Oh, right, right. Like the necrotizing fasciitis, the, right. You want to talk about that patient, Amy, from right, Georgia? Right, right. There was one, uh, one young woman that wound up uh, falling off a zip line onto a creek bed and wound up with a terrible infection with something called Vibrio vulnificus, which causes, causes something called necrotizing fasciitis, a kind of traveling infection that went to all sorts of different parts of her body, and she wound up getting multiple amputations as a result. So bacteria like this, if you allow them to stay in the wound, not slow the healing process in open wounds and can cause major issues. At the very least, it competes with, with baby growing cells for nutrients, right? Now, necrotic dead tissue, dead tissue is also called necrotic tissue, uh, by the way, also causes inflammation in nearby tissues and it increases the chance for something called sepsis. It may get into the bloodstream and cause a body-wide infection. That's called sepsis. It could be life-threatening. And also, failure to remove non-viable tissue interferes with the ability of live tissue to naturally close an open wound from below. That's a process called granulation. So a lot of really, really good reasons to deal with a wound by debriding any dead tissue that might be in it. Uh, removal of non-viable tissue by debridement and treatment with antibiotics together help a wound to heal. But either treatment alone doesn't give you the best chance of avoiding infection. And that is according to some studies that we uh, that I read in the recent issue of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, that journal that I told you about just at the beginning of the segment. The, 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 that article reference an evaluation of open fractures. An open fracture is where the skin has been broken, the bone's sticking out, or the bone had stuck out. And it can always pop back in. It's, in other words, a pretty severe injury that's found in both survival settings and wilderness settings and battlefield settings all over the place. And the results seem to show that surgical intervention and antibiotics, if they're given within two hours of the injury, is uh, that combination is associated with the lowest rate of infection. Now, when antibiotics are given on time, but surgery is delayed, when surgery, when a removal of dead tissue and, and, and dealing with the issue surgically, when antibiotics are given on time, but surgery is delayed, there's higher rates of infection. But when surgical intervention occurs on time, but you delay the antibiotics, even higher rates are noted Although signs of infection, of course, may not show up for a couple of days or so. So let's talk about this for one second. So if you have surgical intervention and provide the antibiotics within the two-hour period, yes, they've got reduced chance of infection. And that's why it's so important to evacuate. That's why evacu rapid evacuation has led to much more survival, survival rates. in uh, Iraq and Military, Afghanistan. Exactly. Um, so if you give... The surgery, you do the surgery, but you have delayed the antibiotics for some reason. They have higher incidence of infection. So of the infection. antibiotics do make a big difference. But if you give the antibiotics on time and delay the surgery, they have a little less infection rate than delaying the antibiotics. So it's the timing of the antibiotics that seems to be the highest factor right. for these infection rates. And the, the surgery timing 
is secondary. Still, but still, still affects the but rates. it increases the rate of infection if you delay the surgery too. So you've got to right, both of them. Do They're both. both exactly. You absolutely. It's just do the both. antibiotics are are slightly better for reducing infection rates yes. than just strictly the surgery. Exactly. It's it's uh, it. They're intertwined. Exactly. Very very much so. Now, there are various ways to debride a wound. Uh, there are only a number of those ways that are, in my opinion, options in any kind of major survival scenario. And, of course, the major one, the most common one is going to be called, is, is called sharp debridement, is when you use a, a sterile scalpel and scissors, or scissors, to quickly remove tissue that is dead tissue. If you go on uh, the, on our, on, at doomandbloom.net on our article that I wrote, just recently on this subject, you'll see a video that shows basically how that's done. And some surgical skill, of course, is useful for the best results. And certainly you should not be too squeamish for this because you have to cut out pieces of tissue from somebody. But it is indeed the most common way to deal with it and a very effective way. There's mechanical debridement, of course, where you take uh, your irrigation syringe and aggressively flush out tissue, remove debris, leads to a cleaner wound, but the results just aren't as complete or as rapidly seen as you would see with sharp debridement. Uh, less skill, of course, is required to achieve the end result, so it may be a way to go if you just don't have anybody who's willing to perform the sharp debridement. But between you and I, the sharp debridement is superior to just mechanically debriding a wound. But every wound must be mechanically debrided, even if all the tissue is alive. Has to, you have to flush it out, get the dirt out, get the debris out. Uh, biological debridement, now that's something that uh, we haven't really talked in much detail about before. I don't think I'll talk about it more in detail in, in future shows. And that's maggot therapy. And in maggot therapy, they use the larva of the green bottle fly to digest dead tissue and bacteria. It's funny because... Okay, now you're just getting disgusting. (laughs) Here I am again. (laughs) Here we go, right down that path. Yep. Is there just one show where we don't grow someone out? (laughs) Survival is survival, baby. I know. If you save a life by using maggots, then it is worth it. And so these maggots are actually grown in laboratories. You can order maggots if you so desire. uh, Or you can actually... Collect maggots yourself in an area where uh, there are this type of fly or some of the other uh, species of flies that they use. Uh, you can collect maggots by placing, let's say, a dead rat or a squirrel in a bag and put some small holes in the bottom, hang that bag over a plate or a pan to collect maggots that will fall out through the holes in a few mm, days. So are you saying lunch or dinner? Yeah, well... <laughs> Protein's protein, but this one here you know we're what? using to place in the wound. And you know what? It's tried and true. And it works. That's yeah. the thing. This is this is not speculation. This has absolutely been used and proven to be effective. Right. And I will be writing about this in more detail, maybe doing even doing a video on it. Although I don't know if I'm going to be able to get the maggots for a show and tell. Ooh, we could do that. We can look and see if we find them. Yeah. Oh, we got some squirrels we have to get rid of. <laughs> Coconut-eating yeah. squirrels. Yep. They're crazy. Yep. They it's... look like they're on heroin. Their eyes are all red and bloodshot. Yeah. And they're, they're crazy when they eat these coconuts. They're eating my coconuts. They're eating our coconuts. You know what I say? It's personal this time. 
<laughs> That's a reference to a commercial. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so anyhow, what is your goal in debriding a wound? To have clear margins of alive, healthy tissue on all sides. This tissue is going to bleed somewhat. If it's health, if it's alive, it bleeds. If it's dead, it doesn't bleed. So, but don't worry. The fact that it bleeds a little bit is fine. It's unlikely to hemorrhage, and you'll know that you have some live tissue there. Uh, then you can use moist dressings to cover the wound. Change it regularly if the wound does not appear. If more dead tissue doesn't appear or the wound doesn't appear infected, you might even consider closure of the wound after a period of time. Uh, debridement takes place in modern facilities in normal times, uh, all the time, if you've ever been to a burn unit, and that is a, a sad place to be, believe me, but you'll see them do a lot of debridement oh, of so dead tissue. Oh, it's so painful. And, I think yeah. that was one of the worst rotations, besides PEDS. Mm -hmm. PEDS was so sad for me, those poor children that were sick, but the burn unit. Burn unit is Because an they issue. were in so much pain. Burns are so incredibly painful, and even yes, with the really strong medications, these people still feel pain. Because there's all these damaged nerves there, and oh, and when they have to debride their wounds, right. which is because they have to get down to live tissue. Day, right. I know it's not easy. In survival scenarios, I'll tell you, you've got to do the procedure wherever you have the best lighting and wherever you have the bulk of your medical supplies. Always have an assistant. To help, that's a, always a good idea. If you're inexperienced, you got to learn the anatomy of the area. If the wound is damaged, if there's dead tissue in an area, the anatomy might be unclear. So you better have a good textbook on anatomy in your survival library. Learn as much as you possibly can before a long-term disaster takes place. Now, the bottom line, very simple. Live tissue heals. Dead tissue doesn't. Debridement allows you to remove the dead tissue so the live tissue can become viable enough to recover. So that's something that's very, very important now. Absolutely. Now, I want to just say one thing. Since we talked about a good survival library, I want to ask people to... Make an old man happy. Yes. To, <laughs> and what old man would that be, that sir, would, dear sir, I, I young will, man? It, if you want to experience the joy <laughs> of helping the elderly, you can help me, you, the elderly. You're elderly? An elder, oh, a very elderly person. You hide it very well, well by the way. Well, thank you very much, but I am indeed elderly. <laughs> is that you that can special, help me. wait, wait, is that that special magical cream you put on every special day? Special magical cream, yes. <laughs> it's called soap. Yeah. <laughs> It's a magical man soap, but it's only man soap. That's right. We won't use girly soap. No, I don't use girly soap. But yes, you can make an old man very happy, and you can make yourself medically prepared and your family safer by getting a copy of our 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. It, there is a third edition now, guys. People are still buying the second edition. I see that up on Amazon, but the third edition is what I want you guys to get. It is bigger and has more illustrations, and it covers more topics. And 700 we, pages. Yeah, I, we really went through a couple of main things. One was the whole bleeding control section. Oh, yeah. That was a big thing. Oh, I changed. we changed a lot of stuff I in know there. We the did, respiratory infections were changed. I know we changed a lot, but that was for me because of what's been going on in the world. I Active think that was like a real, things, yeah, that yeah. was like a really oh, just a topic that everyone needs to know about. 
and needs to know a lot about. And also, I went through the medical supply list. Yes. And really, you really, really tuned that up. I, if you guys can think of anything that I've left off, I would be shocked. <laughs> well, I'll tell you guys, if you just Even put a check next to the stuff papers. that you have and you'll see that yeah. you still have some holes in those medical supplies. And if you do have holes in those medical supplies, feel free to check out the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and individual supplies on her website at store.doomandbloom.net. Yes. That's store.doomandbloom.net, right? Store.doomandbloom.net. All right. You'll be glad you did. <laughs> we are out of time. Thank you so much, guys, for listening in to the Survival Medicine Hour. We will be talking about all sorts of interesting stuff next week as well. You have anything to say, bud? Um, hmm. No, I'm pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.